Today we're going to continue, and again we're going to go back to this letter as we've been doing for the last five weeks. We are today in part six, and we just go through it verse by verse. And we, we go right into it. We unpack the word. And, and the purpose of that is, is so that we can grow. Remember what the Word of God says. He says that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by what? By the preaching of the Word of God. The Bible, watering it down. But we stand fast on the Word of God, and that is what we should preach and this is what John gives us. So we today are going to continue what we've laid down last week. We're going to look at the test of knowing Him. The test of knowing Him. And remember what we're saying. This whole letter is about test of reality in a Christian's life. It's so easy for people to say, I'm a, I'm a Christian, isn't it? Everybody these days, it, it just depends from which country you come from. You come from a Christian country and everybody in the country says... I'm a Christian. But how is that tested? There's so many churches today where there are people sitting in churches who call themselves Christians. But are they ever tested against what? Against the Word of God. And this is what John so brilliantly does. Remember what I said last week? It's like a mirror. The Word of God is like a mirror. And we see the image of Jesus Christ in that mirror. And we see the efficiencies that we have. We're not perfect. Have you noticed lately? When you look in the mirror, you're not perfect. Have you looked inside of your brain and look at your thought processes? We're not perfect, friends. But Jesus Christ is. And we have, we have this, this model in front of us that the Bible gives us. And we measure against that. We do not become copycats. But we become imitators of Christ. We imitate Him. How do we do that? By applying the Word of God to our lives. That's how we do it. And we here we find Him talking to us about the test of knowing Him. We're going to look at 1 John chapter 2, just from verse 7 to 14. In fact, I don't think we're going to get to verse 14. But let me remind you why John was writing the Gospel and why he was writing these letters. First of all, John chapter 20 verse 31. Why did John write this down? This is what he writes. He says, But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. What things is he talking about? He's talking about the things in the Word of God. He says, These things, in fact, when he writes that down, he was talking about the gospel that he wrote down. He says, these things that I've been writing to you in the, in the previous 20 chapters, I'm only writing this to you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Christ there is the title of God. It's His deity. It means that you and I need to believe that Jesus Christ was not an angel like the Jehovah Witnesses say. He's not just a person. That he was God with us, Emmanuel. This is why he writes this down. The Son of God. Remember when he says the Son of God there? It means from heaven where Jesus Christ came down to us. But when Jesus lived on the earth, he used what title? Come on, you should know it by now. The Son of Man. The Son of Man. 
So here we see that he says to them, he says, I write these things to you so that you may believe in Christ, the Son of God. But when Jesus is here, he says, I'm reaching out from earth to heaven. I am the one between heaven and earth, the Son of Man. And now he says this, and that believing what you may have, you see that word there, life. You may have life. Let me tell you, you haven't got life if you haven't come to the life giver. And the only life giver in our life, in all the eons of time, is Jesus Christ. Is God our Father, it's the Holy Spirit. That's the only one who can give you life. There are so many people today who are striving to find life. Oh, I just want to live. I want freedom. I want all of this. But they miss the mark. Because the only one who can give it to you is Jesus Christ. The Son of God, Christ, the Son of Man. This is why he writes the Gospel. So when you read the Gospel, when you read the letters, remember this, that you need to believe in the Son of God. You see, life is one of John's key words that he uses in his Gospels. The word life. He used it over 39 times. Then I think it's important that you and I understand what life is all about. This is what he's, he's doing it. At least 39 times he writes about this. And this is what Jesus offers you and me. The sinner. A sinner he offers abundant life. But he's not going to give it to the sinner until the sinner comes to the cross. You have to come to the cross of Christ. And the only way that you can get this life, I want you to listen very carefully, because there's so many different mixed messages in the world, even in churches today. The only way that you can get this life is through Jesus Christ himself. This is why he writes this down. He says that believing you may have life. Believing in what? In his name. You have but there's some people who say, yeah, I believe, I believe. There's so, many, there's so many different religions in the world who do believe in Jesus. They do. But what kind of belief is this? It's not just by saying it. It is by coming to the cross of Christ and bow your knee before the Lord of Lords and He will save your soul. This is the first step. It's not the only step. But you see... He says here, believing that you may have life in His name. What is that name? Have you ever wondered, what is that name? Oh, it's the name Jesus, they say. But there's way much more. You see, the average church goer will just say Jesus. That's all they'll say. But there's so much more in that name. You know what's in that name? He uses the word, I am, who I am. You remember that? When did that happen? Back in Exodus. Moses comes before the Lord. And he stands there and God says, I am going to send you, Moses, to take your people out of Egypt. Egypt represents sin. Egypt represents the dark world. Egypt represents death. Moses stands before God and God says to him, I'm going to take you. I'm going to take your people out from there. And he says, Lord, whom shall I tell them sent me? Whom shall I tell them? And what does he say? He says, go and tell them, I am who I am has seen you. I am who I am has seen you. That is so powerful. I want to use the word profound. You know why? 
because he gives himself that name. And when we come into the Gospel of John, how many times does John write down, I am the bread of life. I am the shepherd. That's Jesus' words. His words. And this is what he says, I write these things so that you may believe and that you may have life in his name. So many I am statements. But that's not all he wrote. Look at this. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he gives us another reason why he writes this. It is the same as the previous one, but he takes it one step further. He says there in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Can you see how it's progressed? Can you see that? In the first one, that you may believe. You see? But now he's taking this for granted that these people he was writing the gospel to, that he was preaching to, has actually taken the step to come to the cross. He's taking it for granted now. Because now he writes, these things I've written to you who believe. Where is your belief this morning? Are you still in your way? Or have you believed? That's a question. You see, we are testing ourselves against the word of God. He says, who believe in the name of the Son of God? Why? Why, John? Why do you write this again to us? For this reason. He gives us assurance here. He gives us this assurance in his own words. He writes down there, and I put it in my color. You see this? I put it in my color. He says, that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know that this morning? Oh, some people say, oh, you can't know. Can you really know? Why would John write this down if he can't know? Of course you can know if you've got eternal life. You know, when, when uh, uh, Saul was on the road of Damascus, does he know afterwards? Of course he knows because he had an encounter with Jesus, didn't he? He came to Jesus, he came to the cross, and he knows for sure that the Lord took his sin to the cross and he's forgiven. This is what you know. He says it right there. He says that you may know that you have eternal life. And there's more, that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Everybody say continue. What does the word continue mean? Well, it means continue. It means keep on keeping on. That's what it means. Here's so many people come to me and they get a little bit of hard things in their lives. Things doesn't go the way they want it to go. And you know what they say? Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose my faith. And they say, how can you lose your faith? How, how can you do that? Then I want to take you back to John, which says, these things I write to you so that you may know you have eternal life. Now you are telling me, oh, I'm going to lose my faith. I think I, I don't know whether I've got eternal life anymore. Then we need to take it one step back and go back to the cross. And I ask you honestly, have you knelt at the cross of Christ? Because that's where the big question mark comes up now. Friend, if you come to Jesus Christ, what happens? He builds your faith. And he tells this to you and me, that he writes this, that you and I may know that we have eternal life. My question to you this morning is, do you know that? Or are you still up there sometimes to go, Jesus, you know, I don't really know. And if you are at that point in time, I hardly recommend you hit your knees and you start calling out to God. And maybe you should call to him and say, Lord, Please give me that assurance that I have that eternal life. And he will. 
you will. Because the Bible says in Romans that His Spirit will confer with our Spirit that we are saved. It's not just a wishy wind that blows. No, no, no. But there's one more before we get to the word uh, about the test of faith. And this is in 1 John chapter 1 verse 4. You remember? We've already looked at this. And I love this one. He says, and these things we write to you. Who is the we he's talking about? Who's the we? Everybody who wrote your Bible. It's Paul. It's James. It's Peter. It's Mark. It's Dr. Luke. But it goes further than that. It's everybody in the Old Testament. You know what the Bible does. You know what the Gospel of Christ does. It gives you joy. Hallelujah. Isn't it wonderful? That's what he says. He says, these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Have you ever saw somebody whose joy is full? Yes, I have. They've got the peace of God imprinted on their hearts. They've got the joy of God imprinted on their hearts. These are the people who go through difficult times in their lives, but they still rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. Come on. Rejoice, rejoice and again I say rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say rejoice. And what does Paul says? Paul writes to the Philippians and he says that we need to do that every time. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. I'm not going to start it again, but you know where I'm going. You see, the joy of God fills you up. And what happens with something when it's filled up? Have you seen when you take a cup and you start filling it up? I took a sip from this bottle. But if I take more water again and I keep on throwing it in and it's filled up to the brim and I keep on filling it up, what happens? It overflows. It overflows and we need to overflow with the joy of God. We see too many Christians in the life today who's just, oh, oh the weather, oh the wind, oh the wind, oh the God gave those things to us to overjoy, to overflow. You see, it works like this. If I start filling up this, this bottle and it starts overflowing, I am this bottle, yes? Inside of me, the Holy Spirit is filling me up and the Word of God is filling me up. And you see the bubbles coming up here? You see the bubbles in the bottle? It's starting to flow up. Jesus stood there on the steps that day and he shouted out. He said, he was thirsty, come unto you, unto me. And rivers of joy will flow from the inside out. That was Jesus' words. But you see, I'm this bottle and I'm starting to overflow. Now, if it goes over, where is it going to go? Onto my hand, isn't it? If I start flowing, is it right or, or not? Yes, we're all here. If I start flowing water in here and it's going to drip off, it's going to fill my hand. You want to know who's the hand? That's my family. That's my family. Because if I overflow with joy in the Lord, my family will also overflow from that joy that God is giving in my heart. And listen to me, brothers, fathers, you are the priest of the house. This is you. You need to overflow with joy so that your wife can overflow with joy, so that your children can overflow with joy. Yes? And if I keep on throwing it in, what's going to happen? It's going to overflow and it's going to get into my hand. But what's going to happen from there? It's going to drop off. Now, if I keep it over this pulpit, where is it going to go? It's going to go on the pulpit. Is that right? And the whole pulpit's going to become wet. You want to know who's the pulpit? 
That's your friends. That's your extended family. You see, first you, then your family, the ones that God has placed in your care, and then it overflows to your extended family. And you know what? Your family will see the joy of God which is coming into you, into your family, and into your friendships. All your friends around you will see the joy of the Lord. This is why John C.C. wrote this down, so that we may overflow. But wait, wait, there's one more. So we keep on flowing it in, yeah? It overflows into my hand, it goes onto the pulpit, and we keep on flowing. Where is it going to fall? It's going to drip onto the floor. You want to know who's the floor? It's the whole world. It's the whole, you say, ah, oh, but you've got a different doctrine, your bottle, your, your little... Your little bottle water. You say, that's a doctrine that you dish up. No, 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 no. You know what Jesus Christ said? He says, go and wait. We're in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes over to you. And you will be my witnesses to where? First of all, in Jerusalem. Then into Judea. And then into all the ends of the world. Whew! How wonderful is that? See how powerful is the Word of God? He writes it down one sentence. I could preach a whole sermon on that. And you know what the Word of God will do? It will encourage us your heart because he says there, I write these things to you so that your joy may be full. Let our joy be full, friends, when we hear the Word of God. So this is the reason he writes it to us. And then we saw over this time that we had here that he tested us through the Word of God, wasn't it? He gave us these tests. We saw last week in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, he says, By now, by this we know that we know him. By what? By two things there. By the commandments and by the word of God. That's how you know that you know God. How? By keeping his commandments. And remember last week what we said, that's not the Ten Commandments. That's not even the commandments in the book of Deuteronomy. It is that as well, but it's not where he's pointing that. You remember that was by carrying each other's burdens to love one another. That was the commandments, to pray without ceasing. You remember? These are the things that we know that we know God. How can you be a child of God, a Christian, and you say that you know God, but you don't pray? How? How in the world? It'll be strange, wouldn't it, if you walk through the doors... And you walk right up to my face and I ignore you flat and I turn my back and walk in and I come up and I stand here and I never acknowledge you. How would you feel? You go, well, he's very rude, isn't he? That old boy. You know, he needs to come around. And, and what if afterwards, you know, we, and we go to the coffee table and you stand around with all of your nice food and I walk right past you and you say hi and I just ignore you flat and go on my way. How would you feel? You would say, that old boy is even ruder. You need to pull that guy back. Friend, how is it then that some people do that to the Lord? How is it then that every single morning he sits on the side of your bed waiting for you to wake up because he kept an eye on you every single second while you were sleeping. And as he sits there at the end of your bed and you wake up in the morning and you walk right past him and you don't even say, good morning, my Lord. Come on, let's be face it. Eh? Isn't it true that this is a test of our Christian life? Here he says it's by keeping his commandments. And the second one is, he says his word. You remember the word there is logos. 
and the love of God is perfected in him, and by this we know that we know him. We want to push a little bit further on today, because now he's going to come on, and he's going to say in verse 7, you look at this now, he says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, look at that, no new commandment, you see the word no there? It's a negative. He says, I don't write a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Oh, it is interesting, friends. It sounds like really strange words when he uses old commandment and a new commandment. So what does it mean when he says that? When he says, I'm not writing to you a new commandment. It is an old commandment. But it is. And he says, which you've had from the beginning. Now that beginning is from when you started your walk with the Lord. Remember this now. Because before you started your walk with the Lord, you were in the world. You didn't care about God. You didn't care about God's commandments. You didn't even pick up the Bible. No, no, no. You did not anything of those things. So when somebody tried to talk to you about the God, he said, no, that's nonsense. That's rubbish. I don't want to hear about that stuff. So that's no commandments for you from the beginning. Although they were from the beginning of time, it didn't affect you. But when did it start affecting you? When the Holy Spirit started pulling you in and when you hear the Word of God and you were touched by your heart and you were saved by the Spirit of God, what happened? You started studying the commandments. And this was an old commandment. What is it? We come to the Lord, we confess our sins, it's the gospel. It is old, but it's also new. This is what he tells them. An old commandment which you had from the beginning the beginning of your Christian walk. He says, I'm not replacing that. But you know what's going to happen? You're going to understand it more now. He says again, the new commandment write to you which thing is true in him and in you. You see this? It's true in him because the truth lies in Christ and in you because he now lives in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Let's look at what Jesus said about this. You see, when they came to Jesus, they said to him in Matthew 22, verse 36, they said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in all the law? Which, what is that commandment? We all know what that commandment is, don't we? If you've read Exodus, you would have learned that. Jesus said it right. He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. What does that mean? It means everything of you. Every single thing of you. That's the big and the great commandment. He answered that correctly. But then he says further, this is the first and the great commandment, and the second is like it. So in other words, this is also as great as the commandment to love God. And what is it then, Jesus? It is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, on these two commandments hang the law and the prophets. Who shall you love as yourself? Oh man, I see so many people loving themselves. Of course, we need to love ourselves. That's what he says, as yourself. 
It's nothing wrong to love yourself, but you need to love your labor as yourself. Oh, have you seen how much time people spend with themselves as they love themselves? Sometimes you get in front of that mirror and you go, Oh man, you are such a fine old boy, look at you. Mm, you've aged very well. You keep on looking at yourself and you start doing these things, isn't it? How much time are you spinning up there? Yeah, that's pretty good. You're looking, oh, man, I love this. But you know what? This was the first commandment that was broken in the Bible. The first one. You remember when Adam was in the Garden of Eden? He respected his wife more than he loved God. He respected Eve more than he loved God. God said, thou shalt not eat. To whom? To him. God didn't talk to Eve. He came to Adam. Eve wasn't even created when God came to Adam. And he says, thou shalt not eat of that tree. It was a direct word from God. God created Eve as a helper. Okay? It means equal. It doesn't mean he becomes his slave. I won't go into that. It's a different story. But, but listen to this now. But then Satan came because the word was secondhand given to Eve. Adam gave her the word and said, God said we shall not eat of that tree. Eve, you stay away. Who knows that that becomes a difficult thing? It's like that chocolate cake in your fridge. The more you tell it to stay away, the more, more you are drawn to it. So what happens? He went and she, she listened to Satan when he came into the Garden of Eden. What did Adam have to do when she came to him and said, Hey, man, I've eaten from the thing. I didn't die. What did he have to do? He had to obey God and love God above his wife, but he didn't. And who broke this as well? Cain, his son, like father, like son. Wasn't it? What was the problem with Cain? He killed his brother. Both of them were offering. What offering did uh, Abel do? Or first Cain. Cain, he had all of his produce there. He had his nice vegetables and everything. He was so proud of himself walking around, see this garden. Wow, look at all of the hard work I've put into this. Who knows that when you put in a veggie garden, it takes work. I've done it, yes? Who's done it? You have to clear out all of the, the stuff that needs to come out. Oh, it's sore on the back. You are sweating. Your muscles is sore. And you dig it out and you dig it out. Then you put it in and then you need to go on your knees and put in every single seed. And then you sit there and you wait and then you give them water and you nurture them and they grow and eventually you see the fruit. And what do you do? Man, I'm so proud of what I've done. See what I have done. What did Abel do? Abel listened to his father. You know what he did? He went and he took an animal and he sacrificed the animal. What did he have to do? The animal was growing up. It was a blood sacrifice that God was looking for. Nothing that you can do is good enough for God. Can you, can you just hear me this morning? Nothing that you can do is good enough for God. God gave a commandment. You know what the commandment is? They shall be death. For sin. There's consequences for sin. This is why, you remember when Adam and Eve were sinning, they put some leaves, some prickly leaves to cover their nakedness. But what did God give them? A tunic. He gave them skin. Where do you think the skin came from? Did God just sit there and say, skin? He could have, but he didn't. Something had to die to cover the sin. Here we find these two brothers. Both of them offered. And whose offer was accepted? Abel's. Not what you can do can satisfy God. And then he broke this law. He broke this law by killing his brother. 
So this is what Jesus said, the second is like it. Now look at John chapter 13, verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you. This is Jesus. Now one would think, wait a minute, then he wipes out the old and he gives... No, no, this is what John was talking about. He says, it's no new one, it's an old one. Listen to this now. He says, that you love one another as I have loved you. What kind of love is that? Sacrificial love. That you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, sacrificial love is something that everybody needs to have who calls themselves children of God. Sacrifice. The definition for love is to satisfy others at the expense of self. You know what the definition for lust is? And I'm not talking sexual lust. I'm talking lust for yourself. This definition for lust is to satisfy self at the expense of others. This love here is to satisfy others at your own expense. And he was unreliable, was he? He said to Jesus, I will be there. But then he ran away. He was unreliable. How can you love somebody like that, you would say? Somebody who boasts all the time about himself. Oh Lord, you know, I will be there for you. These guys, they will all run away. But I, man, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm going to be there. They say more than they can do. This was Peter. And then we find James and John, the sons of thunder. One wonders why they got that nickname, sons of thunder. Do you know what thunder is? Thunder makes you fearful, isn't it? I don't know. Maybe these boys grew up and everybody was fearful of them. Or because the sons of Zebedees, the sons of thunder, they were called. Maybe they had short fuses. You know what a short fuse is? Getting angry really quickly. I don't know. But they were also selfish. And they were so full of themselves. They had a successful business. And they were so... You remember when they got their mother to come to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, let, let one sit at each side. My son sit next to you. Is it easy to love somebody like that? You see, we take some things for granted. What about Thomas, the doubting Thomas? He was the stubborn one. You say, how was he stubborn? You remember when Jesus appeared to them and he came and says, I will not believe until I put my fingers into your wounds. Stubborn. Oh, we find so many stubborn people these days. Is it easy to love a guy like Thomas? And what about Philip, the introvert? He was always pulling away. He, he was like a, a mouse, you know. He was always trying to pull away Philip. Very thoughtful. Always thinking through. Want to stay on the safe side. Introvert. And then Andrew, the hard-headed man. And I can go on with the list. But Jesus says, He says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. You know, He didn't look at any one of those people's faults. He says, as I have loved you. He died on the cross for each and every one of them. He didn't even, I didn't even put Judas in there. Remember Judas Iscariot? The backstabber? Backbiter? Yes? I didn't even put him. He came to Jesus with a kiss which shows intimacy and that was a betrayal kiss. All of these men. And then he says, again, he says, a new commandment I write you. This is John now which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already, si uh, uh, already shining. How did he do that? 
Romans chapter 5, verse 5, he says, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. How can we love somebody? We do it with the love of God which was poured into our hearts. John writes down, he says, God is love. You remember that? Now if we say that God comes and lives in us, as it says the Holy Spirit is in us, what is in us? The love of God. He said, the love has been poured out in your hearts. Now friends, I seriously put a question mark on Christians who do not have love. Where is the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit comes when you are born. One loves one another it's through the love of God. That's a true love. The love of God. Now, how do you measure our progress in this? If we look at ourselves, how do we measure our progress in this? Remember, this is a mirror. And now he's going to give us this now. Listen to this. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, he says, He who says he's in the light and hates his brother. Everybody say hates. He says, he who says in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is a practical application. You say you're a child of God, but you've got so much hate inside of you. You know what hate is? Hate, the dictionary says, is a feeling of extreme hostility or extreme dislike in one another. Extreme hostility and a dislike. And you see, friends, hate has many faces. We know this, don't we? Many faces. And it expresses itself in two ways generally. First of all, in an active way, hate. It's when you take action towards that person you hate. A physical action. It's malicious talk about that person. That is a sign of hate. Malicious talk. Slander behind their back. Or sometimes in their face. That's a sign of hate. We have to see these things. Or sometimes it's actually go up and physically to beat them. Or you throw the garbage over their fence. Or you make them coffee and you put salt instead of sugar. <laughs> All of these things, you know, this, uh, you know I, I started reading up about hate. These terrible things people do to one another who hate. Slash their tires. Key their cars. Hate the car they're driving. That brand. Oh, I hate that person. And, and they're driving a Nissan. And you know, Nissan is from the devil. Honestly, Nissan. If you ride in a Nissan car, it's from the devil. The devil is in that car, man. In the name Nissan comes from, oh, that name Nissan. Oh. And then every time they see a Nissan car, first of all, they think of that person and they hate it. doesn't matter who sits in that car. They drive past him and, and with dismay they go around, I don't like him. They don't even know the person. Hate takes over people and it controls them. And let me tell you this, friends. Some people say, oh, it just came over me. It's like an emotion. Hate is not an emotion. Hate is a choice as love is a choice. You choose to hate somebody and then you choose to react 
to do them harm. That's an action. But then you get the passive one. It expresses itself in passivity as well. It's a, it's indifference. You know the word indifference? I don't care. I don't care about them. I write them off. Whatever happens to them, I don't care. That's a sign of hate or coldness of isolation. That's the biggest one is isolation, isn't it? That's the one who hurts the most. Somebody, family member somewhere, some friends or somebody, and all you do is I'm going to isolate them. I'm going to cut them off. You know what? This is just an expression of what he says. That he says, he who says he's in the light, you can do whatever you want to do, but he hates his brother, he's in darkness. He's in darkness until now. It's one of the cruelest things in difference if you say, I don't care about people. That can happen. Now we finish with this verse. Look at this now. He says, He who says in the hate, but he hates, he is in darkness until now, isn't it? That is one of the foundations of Christianity, to have solid, godly morals. I will not fall for that. And I can list off a whole list here, but I think you know what I'm talking about. And then you can have your doctrine. You know, your doctrine can be solid. You can say, I can quote scripture after scripture. I know what I believe about the baptism. I know what I believe about regeneration. I know what I believe about all of these things. And you can be 100% accurate in all of your doctrine. You, you believe in this and you believe in that. You can be, you sit here and we go, man, you are solid as a rock. But if you haven't got love, will this chair stay upright? Can you sit on this chair if there's no love? I haven't seen a two-leg seat. You need three. And love keeps it off. Friends, if you take love out of this, you can have all of those things, but your Christian life will be tarnished. The love of God. This is what it's all about. The test of true life in Christ. That we have passed from death to life. How do we know this, John? Because we love the brethren. This is how we know it. That's the proof in the pudding. That's the proof, the fruit. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Death is also darkness. Death is also sin. If you go to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1, he says you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Wow, now he takes a step further, isn't it? He takes a, remember when I said, the active way of hate is trying to disarm a person. Well, if you hate, you actually want to see that person dead. That's his hard words. He's a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding. You see how the whole loop comes to a close? He talks about life, and he says, This I write to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Now he says, I can show you that if you don't have love, you haven't got eternal life. You need to go and inspect your heart again. You know, people ask in our world, why is the world so wicked? Have you asked that question? You see the wickedness going on this last week? Matthew chapter 24 verse 12, he says this, And because lawlessness will abound, what will do? The love of many will grow old. Cold. Because lawlessness, lawlessness will abound. Friends, you look around you now and these lawlessness is abounding in our day and age. And that's why I'm not surprised when there's no love in the world. So, let me ask you, 
to ask yourself, what is my attitude towards my fellow brother and sister? Ask yourself that question. And, and by the fact, he's talking about brothers and sisters in the church.